I think I failed to mention this to Brother Lester before he did the announcements, but just to let you know one additional announcement, I uh, spoke with Brother Randy earlier this week, and he said the gospel meeting he's doing in Sparta this week, that it's actually going to last until Thursday instead of Wednesday, that the elders there had talked to him, and they, they requested him to stay an extra day. So just be aware if you were planning on, on attending the gospel meeting where he's at this week, he will actually go through Thursday evening. I do want to say my appreciation to several of the men of this congregation. With Randy being gone this week, and he's going to be gone next week as well to a gospel meeting, he's actually going to be gone uh, a particular Sunday in May, I think, on vacation. But between this week, next week, and then that one Sunday in May, we had 13 different spots that we needed filled in for while he was gone, whether it be uh, bringing the lesson, teaching class, uh, doing the invitation on Wednesday night. There were 13 spots that needed to be filled. We had 11 men from this congregation stand up to do that. 11 people stood up to fill those 13 spots. And I think Brother Lester and Brother Glenn, both of them have, have been willing to do um, two spots apiece, and I thank them for that. But for a congregation this size, that's unheard of. I mean, that's extremely encouraging. It, it encourages me, and I think it should each of you as well. So thank you for those of you who have done that. Have you ever asked the question, what can I do? What can I do? Maybe it's been a situation that you've seen somebody hurting, and, and you're asking to know, what can you do to help? What can you do to, to alleviate some burden that they have? Or maybe you've seen a need somewhere, and you want to ask, what can I do? How can I help? How can I get involved? Keep that question in the back of your mind for a minute. What can I do? We'll come back to that. You know, in my short professional career, I've, I've had the a fortunate situation to work at many different organizations, many different companies. Um, some of them have been full-time jobs, some part-time. Some of them were internships and co-ops when I was in school. But I've been around several different organizations. And some of them that I've been in, they've been, at least to say, very stressful environments. Sometimes were a struggle to go to work at times. Most of these environments seem to be played with low morale, that they seem to be very inefficient in the output that they have. But then there's other organizations that are very, very efficient organizations, that there seems to be happy employees that are there. They, they seem to operate like a well-oiled machine. In just the small, small amount of time that I've been in the workforce, I've noticed a few trends that tend to, to set apart different organizations that are very good at what they do, that really seem to run like that well-oiled machine. I want us to look at a couple of these real quick. As we begin, let's look at management. What's the traits of, a manage, of management of a manager that, that runs an organization very well? First, they seem to they care about the success of the organization. They want to see the organization do well, but they also care about the employees. They care about each person that works there, what's going on in their personal lives. They're willing to put in the long hours. They're willing to do the hard work. They're not going to ask one of their employees to do something that they wouldn't be willing to do themselves. And one of the things that they also do is they clearly define the expectations for those that are working below them. They make sure that everybody understands what they're supposed to be doing. So now from an employee side, there, there's things that employees do as well to make this organization run, run well. Just like management, they also have that desire to see the company succeed. They want to see the company do as good as it can. They don't get involved in drama or gossip that may go on within the organization, and, and many of you probably know what I'm talking about. It tends to happen most everywhere. They understand what their role is. 
where they fit into the organization, but they also know that they're going to be asked to do things that are outside their quote-unquote job description, and they're going to be willing to do that. Organizations like that that function in that way seem to do very well. So you may be asking right now, okay, Jonathan, what in the world does this have to do with church? Well, let's use the analogy for a minute, and, and I don't mean any disrespect comparing the church to a business, but let's look at the analogy of how well the church runs. What is a sign, what are some, some trends of, an, of a church that runs like a well-oiled machine? Who is management? We're told in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, Jesus is head of the church. Jesus would be comparable to that management role. Now, of course, he cares about the success of the church. He suffered much persecution, much ridicule while he was here on earth, all to lay the foundation of what the church was coming. He cares about the quote-unquote employees, the members of the church. He cares about making sure that they're taken care of. It's, we're told in Second Peter that he's long-suffering. He's not willing that anybody should perish. He wants the members of the church to do well, to be taken care of. He's clearly defined the expectations for us. We're told in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all scripture has been given by inspiration to God, and it goes on to say, it does so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have everything that we need. We've been told what's been expected of us. He puts in the long, or he did put in the long hours. He spent all of his, his years that he was traveling and preaching, traveling on foot most of the time, having nowhere really to, to sleep, putting in the time that was necessary. And I don't think I really have to go into details about he's willing to do the hard work. I mean, we've heard of stories before where an employer, a boss, may donate a kidney to one of their employees. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. Jesus laid down his life. He willingly gave himself up to die for it. So we know from a quote-unquote management side of the church, that part's been done. And so in order for a church for the church to run like a well-oiled machine, for it to be as efficient as it's intended to be, we have to look at ourselves now. What are we doing as, as the members of this church? What part are we putting in? Do we care about the success of the church? Do we want to see the church go as far as it possibly can to have the impact in this world that Christ intended for it to have? You know, what, what if... What if the success of the church universally was measured by how we interact with it? By how we as Christians put forth our effort to the church, what if that was the measure of success of the church? Do we try to avoid temptations that we see, such as gossip and drama that may go, in with, go on within a particular congregation? I'm not saying we have that problem here, but I know many congregations are plagued with that. Do we try to avoid those temptations? But the questions I want us to focus on this morning is, do we understand what our role is within the church? And are we willing to put forth the effort and do what we're asked to do, whether it be outside of our comfort zone and what we normally expect from ourselves? Are we willing to put forth the effort and the work that's necessary? So now I come back to the initial question of, what can I do? What can I do? There's three different areas I want us to look at this evening the first one I want us to look at is I want to see what's expected of us in our daily lives. What does Christ expect from each of us as an individual Christian in what we do? Then I want us to look at what can we do for the church universally? What, what are things that I can do to help the church along? And then I want us to get a little bit more personal. I want us to look at here at Pippin. 
What can each of us sitting in this room do here at Pippin to make sure this congregation is the type of congregation Christ expects from us? All right, so what does Christ expect from me on a daily basis? What does he expect from each one of us? The list of this, I mean, it's, it's so long, there's no way we could possibly get through a full list. So I just want to highlight a couple, a couple things that, that I think are, are very important to that. The first one, and, and Adam talked about this some this morning, we're expected to read our Bibles. We are expected to delve into this book, to know and to understand this book. We're told in Acts chapter 17 that Paul and Silas, they've traveled into Berea. And when they get there, it talks about the people who are in Berea that they've received the word with all readiness. But it also says that they search the scriptures daily to make sure that what they're being told was so. They didn't just trust what's being told to them. You shouldn't just trust what I'm telling you tonight. You have a responsibility. Each of us has a responsibility to go back and let's look in the Bible and see if what we're being told is true. If we don't do that, how different are we than any other denomination throughout the world that that's what's led them to where they're at today is they will not go back to the Bible. They are listening to what a man tells them. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I want everybody to get their Bibles out. There's a couple passages we're going to look at tonight. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. It says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give, de- give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. If we do not know this book, if we don't know what this Bible says, how in the world are we going to give a defense to somebody for the hope that's in us? And giving a defense to somebody, it's not simply just regurgitating what somebody else has told you. This says, okay, this is what I believe. Giving a defense means you are giving the reasons behind it. You have to know why you're doing what you're doing. We're expected to know and to understand this Bible. We've been trying every month in the bulletins. We're giving out a schedule for our daily Bible readings. I understand there's nowhere in the Bible that tells us we're supposed to read the Bible through every year. What the intentions are behind this is we're, we're trying our best to make daily Bible reading a habit for every member of this congregation. You don't have to read the Bible from cover to cover every year. But we're expected to be in the Word every day. And so and by giving out some kind of a reading plan for us, it gives us a goal to shoot towards. It gives us something to look to to try to achieve is to say we've read the Bible all the way through. But the fact is we need to be reading the Bible, plain and simple. The next one I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on. I mean, it's, it's very simple what the Bible tells us to do. The next thing that Christ expects from us is we're to be praying. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, it says it very plainly. It says, pray without ceasing. I don't think there's any more that needs to be elaborated on that. There's another thing that we're expected to do, or I will say expected to not do. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and as you're turning there, turn over to verse 25. One thing that's expected of us as Christians is we are expected to not worry, to not give thought to all these other frivolous things that are going on that take up our attention and pull it away from where it needs to be at. So Matthew chapter 6, let's begin reading verse 25. It says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? We are expected to not worry in our lives. Now, things are going to come up. We understand that. Things that are, that are going to require our attention. But once we cross in that realm of worrying, we are no longer given the attention to Christ and to our beliefs that we should be given to it. Amen. Stay in Matthew and turn with me over to chapter 12. Be turning to chapter 12. Next thing I want to spend a second on that Christ expects from us in our daily lives, he expects us to watch what we say. He expects us to pay attention to the words that are coming out of our mouths. Matthew chapter 12, let's begin reading verse 36. It says, But I say to you that for every idle word men may say, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The words that come out of our mouths have meaning. Everything that we say means something. Even if we're not talking about something religious, something that's completely secular we could be talking about, we're, we're presenting meaning by our words. We're told in James chapter 1, verse 26, it says that if you think you're religious and you don't bridle your tongue but you deceive your heart, your religion is useless. Your religion is useless if you can't control the words that are coming out of your mouth. Words that I say, things that I tell other people, I can do a whole lot to further the church. I can help the church grow. I can tell people what they need to do. But I can say one thing that could destroy the church far more than I could ever build it up. That one comment that I make to somebody could do more harm than the good I could ever do. Christ expects us to watch what we say. We are always a representative of him. We are always representing the church in everything we do, even if we're not inside this building. As I said, there, there's an extensive list we could go through, but there's one more I want us to look at. Stay in Matthew. Turn back to chapter 6 again. Matthew chapter 6, let's read verse 14. It says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Christ expects us to be forgiving people in our daily lives. It doesn't say that they have to come and ask for your forgiveness first. He expects us to forgive people. And if we're not willing to do that, then he will not forgive us. If you think about that, that's, it it's almost sends a chill up your spine. That there's something I could do that would cause God not to forgive me of what I'm doing. If we're not willing to forgive other people, we could fall in that category. So there's just a few things that, that Christ expects from us on a daily basis. But now what can I do that's going to be helping the church universally? What can I do to help this, this organization, this structure that Christ has put into place on this earth? You know, we're told in Acts chapter 6, and I think everybody's familiar with the story, that the widows were being tended to, that they were being distributed to a daily distribution. And something come up where some of, the, some of the widows were being skipped over, maybe being missed in some way. And so they gathered some men together to, to basically run this distribution to make sure it was taken care of properly. Most of the times when we hear that, that section of passages talked about, we're focusing on the men that were chosen, that were put in place. We, we think of as, as deacons possibly. But I don't want us to lose sight of the widows were being tended to they were being taken care of by a daily distribution. There was work that was being done, no matter how it was being run, there was work being done to try to tend to the need of somebody else. 
several of our passages this evening are going to come from Matthew. So stay in Matthew and turn over to chapter 25. This one's going to be a little bit of a longer passage, but I want us to read this together. Because I think what this is going to do is it's going to do a pretty good job of summarizing everything that I'm wanting to say here. Matthew chapter 25, turn there with me. Let's begin reading in verse 33. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. What this passage is trying to describe to us, what's expected from us, what we can do for the church, we have to have the heart and the mindset of a servant. We are to be serving those that are around us, people that are in need around us. We're to be putting forth the effort to make sure that they are being tended to, that they are being taken care of. You know, the Bible does, I think, a very good job of giving example after example of individuals that we're supposed to be mimicking our lives after, that we're supposed to be trying to follow their example of what they've done and live our life that way. And I know a lot of times when, when we hear this talked about, we hear about, I use the term characters in the Bible, people like Paul, people like Moses, like David, even Jesus himself. Yes, and I think as, as Adam described this morning around Peter, with the exception of Jesus, all of these individuals we've talked about, we can 100% attain what they've done because they were human. They made mistakes. They did things they should not have done. If you actually go and read the stories of each one of these individuals, some of them did some very horrific things. But the fact is, we need to be trying to mimic them. And so instead of trying to give examples of these individuals today, because I even know myself personally, when I think about that, it just seems overwhelming to try to compare myself to somebody like that and say, I'm going to be living like that person. So I want us to look at some examples this evening of some individuals who may not be quite as well-known in the Bible, that there's not near as much information recorded about them in their lives, but what it does record, it gives us a perfect glimpse into what they did in their life and why the Holy Spirit felt worthy to include them in the Scriptures. So turn with me over to 3 John, the first one I want us to look at. The book of 3 John is a letter that was written to a man by the name of Gaius. Begin reading with me in verse 1. It says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, 
Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Stop right there for a second. I think that's interesting what's said in verses 3 and 4. Basically, Gaius, he's walking the walk. He's not just talking the talk. He's living out what he believes. Keep reading with me in verse 5. It says, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers you have, who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth in his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Basically what Gaius is doing is he is tending to the needs of traveling preachers. It says in verse 5 that he's done for strangers that come to him and that his good works are being talked about throughout the church. And it says when he sends them away, they don't have to go and get anything from the Gentiles. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's sending them away with everything that they need. He's not performing any kind of miracles. He's not doing anything that in our mind just seems unfathomable how we could do something like that. Basically what he's doing is he's making sure that preachers that travel through his area... He's making sure they're taken care of. He's making sure they have what they need. They have somewhere to stay. They have food while they're there, and they have the provisions they need when they leave. I think that's something that any of us could very easily do. Turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, I want us to look at a lady by the name of Tabitha. Say that, many of you may be thinking, well, who is Tabitha? I don't remember that name in the Bible. Name is translated Dorcas. So I think most of us are probably aware of, of her story. But read with me, Acts chapter 9, let's begin reading in verse 36. It says, At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa... And the disciples had heard that Peter was there. They sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. Very simply, what Dorcas has done, again, nothing unfathomable that we today can't easily do. She was given of her time and her energy. She was putting forth the effort to make sure that others around her had what they needed. That she was providing tunics, garments to different individuals. And basically there at her memorial, more or less, they were standing around showing off what she had made for them. And she had done something so great that it even justified in the minds of one of the apostles to stop what he was doing in another town and come to her and raise her from the dead. Again, we're told of nothing miraculous that she did. What she was basically doing is she was putting forth the time and the effort to be the servant to somebody else. Turn with me over to the book of Philemon. Philemon is a book that was written, is a letter more or less written by Paul to a man named Philemon. and was, It was written about or concerning an individual by the name of Onesimus. Let's begin reading in verse 10 of Philemon. And again, this is Paul speaking. 
It says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is, now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. At this point, Paul is writing this letter from prison. Paul is in his chains. He's in prison at this point. We're not told exactly what Onesimus is doing, but what we do know is that he is interacting with Paul while Paul is in prison, and it's said that he wants him to tend to him. He wants him to be there with him. We don't know if he's just simply being there to visit him, being someone that he can talk to, to pour his heart out to. Maybe he's being a messenger for him, going and taking messages to other individuals. Maybe he's there sharing, sharing good news of other things that are going on within the church. But simply put, he's tending to the need of somebody else in a very simple way. He's just simply being there. And in doing so, again, the Holy Spirit finds reason to include not just a few passages about Philemon in the Bible, but one entire book of the Bible is dedicated to what he has done, something that any of us, again, could easily do in our lives. There's one more I want us to look at, and then we'll move on. Turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, and again, I believe this is a story that all of us are familiar with, that we've all heard before. But let's begin reading in verse 1. And it says, And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. And that's Jesus is talking about. Immediately many gathered together, so that there was no, no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when, he had broken, so when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. You have a situation here where Jesus has come into a town and basically has gathered such a big crowd around him, you can't get anywhere near him. Some men have carried a friend of theirs, a paralyzed man, on a cot or a bed of some kind to Jesus. And when they get there and they see that crowd, their response to their friend was not, look, this isn't going to happen. Look at the crowd. that You can't even get in the door. I'm sorry, you're just going to have to wait and try this again some other time. It's, it's not meant to happen for you. They didn't accept that answer. They literally removed the roof from that house and made sure that he got to see Jesus. What did it say in verse 5? It says, when Jesus saw their faith. It didn't say when Jesus saw his faith, the faith of the paralyzed man. It said when Jesus saw their faith. Well, who's the there they're talking about? I would present to you, I believe it's talking about the four men that were carrying him. Because of what they did, their friend was healed. His sins were forgiven of them. He, they didn't do anything spectacular. They didn't do anything miraculous. What they did was made sure their friend was taken care of. They were simply carrying him to Jesus, and they refused to take no for an answer. They did what was necessary to make sure their friend got the care that he needed. Again, I don't think this is anything that, that is so outside of our reach today that we can't do this. All of these examples, and especially the last one, and all the others, I, I've told you the names of the individuals who did this. This last example, 
We have no idea what their names are. We don't even know the name of the paralyzed man. It never tells us. What I think the Bible is showing us that being a servant to somebody is not for popularity. It is not for us to receive something in return. We're there to be one of the least. We are there to be a servant to somebody else. We're not there to get gain in return. And so when we ask the question, what can I do for the church? I would say we can be a servant. We can do what Christ expects from us in our daily lives. So we've looked at those things Christ expects. We've looked at what we can be doing for the church as a whole. You know, a lot of times you hear sermons like this and they may stop at this point. But I want us to get a little bit more intimate into us here at Pippin. I want us to look at things that we can do here. So when I say, what can I do? What's going on here at Pippin that I can get involved with? What effort can I put forth here that I can actually see a material change in something because of the effort that I put forth? You know, one of the first things that I believe that we have to do or something that we can do, we have to be here. We have to make sure we are here in attendance. About 10 months ago, I believe it was in June of last year, I preached a sermon called Country Music Had It Wrong, where we looked at one particular song from several decades ago, and there was one line in one of the verses that says, I don't believe that heaven waits for only those who congregate. Basically saying, I don't think you have to go to church to go to heaven. And then we looked and compared that to the Bible and saw what did the Bible say about it. We went into detail in Hebrews chapter 10, the verse that all of us are familiar with, that's basically saying, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But we didn't stop there. We kept on going past the, the break that humans have put in the passage there. We went on to see what happens if you sin willfully. If you willfully decide you are not going to attend the assemblies. The things that came after that are some scary, horrific things. It's describing the wrath that is in store for somebody who sins willfully. And then it says down in verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 10 that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If we decide we are not going to be here, now we understand and we talked about it then, there are things that are going to keep us away from the assemblies at time. We understand that and we showed in scripture where I believe God understands that as well. But if we can be here and we make the conscious decision that we're, not just, we're just not going to be, we have something else in my mind that is going to take priority over the assembly and we don't come the Bible tells us what's going to happen to us. It describes what the punishment will be for that. And so one of the things that we can do here at Pippin, we can be here. How are we going to know what else is going on? What else needs to be done if we're not physically here to find out? The next thing I will say that can be done here at Pippin, when somebody asks, what can I do? We can teach class. Now before everybody turns their ears off, I understand that telling somebody, look, I want you to teach a class. It causes nerves and almost nausea inside of you that I have no idea where it comes from. But thinking that you're going to sit in front of other people and present God's word to them, it, it scares some of us to death. But let's talk about it for just a second. What does it really mean to teach class? I mean, we have, we have passages like Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, where it's going through describing what what areas that different people have been given to. And one of the things pinpointed out in that is teachers. We know some people are given to be teachers. Some people just have the talent and the knack for it. But that also implies some people aren't. Some people are just not made to be a teacher. But I would say everybody in this room can do something to teach a class. Here's what I mean by that. 
talking from experience, sitting back in the classroom with some of our youth, sitting there presenting a lesson to them from God's Word, it makes it so much easier when you have somebody sitting next to you. You have somebody in that class with you that is there for support. They're there that if maybe a conversation comes up, they can give their two cents into that conversation if they need to. But they're not the ones that are there that prepared the lesson. They're not the ones doing most of the talking. But yet they're in that class as a teacher. They're showing you that they're there to support you. They're showing the students that I care about your, your scriptural education. We may not all be able to be ones that sit in class and actually present a lesson to somebody. But I think we can all participate in the classes. We can be just a warm body in that room showing the students that we care about them. We care about the lessons that they are being taught. So when I say that what we can do here at Pippin, we can teach a class, I think that's something that every one of us can do. And I would encourage everybody to do that at some point if you haven't already. You know, here in, I guess, a little less than a month now, we have a gospel meeting coming up. What are we going to do about this gospel meeting? I mean, we've already talked about we have to be here, and I do fully believe that Scripture says, well, implies a gospel meeting falls into that. We're expected to be here. Christ expects us to be. But what are we going to do in preparation for it? Are we going to be out spreading the word to those that we're around every day, to our family, to our friends, to our coworkers, to people we go to school with, are we going to be telling them about the gospel meeting? Are we going to try to pack this building so tight we've got to start setting chairs up? You know, a couple years ago, we did a small little campaign where we went door knocking just within the Pippin community. We had several dozen people from the congregation. We passed out little sheets. Okay, you're assigned this portion of this subdivision. You're assigned these houses over there. We didn't do anything spectacular. We had a little flyer, and we went and knocked on the door and said, hey, I'm from Pippin. We're having a gospel meeting coming up on such and such date. We would like for you to come. We passed out probably 100 different flyers, knocked on 100 different doors. Do you know how many people came to the gospel meeting because of that? From what I remember, I think I remember two people came because we went and knocked on somebody's door. And so the reaction I would get from most people in that is, Jonathan, you are absolutely wasting your time. Everybody went out and spent countless number of hours on a Saturday or whatever day they went and knocked on these doors, all this time inviting the people to church, and basically got no response. You had two people come. I would disagree with that. How much effort is, it, is necessary? At what point does it become justified in our minds for the effort we're putting in to bring somebody in this building to hear a lesson preached from God's Word? I mean, at what point does it say, you know what, it's just not worth it anymore? I would say every bit of effort and work that we did knocking doors was completely worth it because we had two souls that came into this building and heard a lesson preached from God's Word. Now, whether or not they were Christians at that point, I don't remember. Whether or not they went from there and ever did anything with it, I don't know. But the simple fact is they were here and they got to hear it. So I'd say in preparation for this gospel meeting that's coming up, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to start telling people, we have a month now, to prepare for this. That's plenty of time for people to get this on their calendars. We need to start telling people this is coming. We need to try to fill this building as tight as we can possibly fill it with people to hear the word of God preached. When somebody asks, what can I do? I'd say another thing that we can do, we can visit the sick. We have so many in this congregation that are sick. In the bulletins, I mean, we try to, to itemize out and list out individuals that we have updates on. 
we try to, to speak about those individuals during our announcement so that everybody hears it. But there's also a small section of the bulletin that basically said those with ongoing health issues. They're individuals that are constantly battling some kind of sickness that just can't seem to go away. They just can't seem to get over it. Those people are hurting just as bad as everybody else is. Visiting somebody basically tells them, I care about you, I care about your health, and I want you to be back with us. We're longing for you to come back and be able to worship with us. Visiting, it's, it's almost like teaching class. It's not always an easy thing to do. I mean, it's, it's somewhat uncomfortable sometimes to go into somebody's home and just sit there and talk, especially if you're not good at that interaction, that conversation with people. But visits like that don't have to be anything elaborate. You don't even have to go in the house. Just go say, look, we miss you. We hope you're feeling better. Is there anything we can do for you to help? You know what? If going and visiting people isn't exactly right up your alley of what you're comfortable with doing, how about making a phone call? How about sending a card to somebody? It doesn't always have to be because they're sick. Maybe there's a birthday. Maybe there's an anniversary. Maybe somebody has accomplished something in their life that they're proud of. If we basically just let them know we're thinking about you. We're celebrating with you. We're mourning with you. We want you to know that we care about you. One of the greatest things, even as a kid growing up, I always loved to get, I love getting cards in the mail. We try to mail out cards to uh, people from our teenage class that are, that are sick and having difficulties. And one of the things I've told the girls, let's not go hand it to somebody in their family out here. Let's mail the thing. Let's make sure they get it in the mail. Always love getting letters and cards from people. You know, and sending a card, I mean, we provide a rack in the back as you're leaving in the foyer that has cards provided to you. I think we even have stamps in there. All you have to do is simply write it. But it doesn't have to be a Hallmark card that gets sent to somebody. It can be just a piece of lined notebook paper that we handwrite ourselves. You know, the, the directories that we pass out here where we list everybody that attends here at Pippin and we have everybody's pictures and their birthdays and their anniversaries, we also have their phone numbers and addresses in there. These directories are given out for a reason. They're not to just occupy a place on our, on our coffee table in our living room. These things are given out so that we can use them. Let's utilize these directories we have. Let's be contacting the people that are closest to us in our Christian family, making sure they know that they are still a part of our family, that we do care about them and love them. You know, another area, and again, it kind of falls in the same boat that, that we could do here at Pippin, about taking food to somebody. Now, I will preface this with saying cook food to somebody or cook food and take somebody or buy food and take to somebody because I can't cook. No one's going to want to eat something I'm going to fix. But it doesn't have to be a home-cooked meal. I mean, you can run to a restaurant in town just as easily and purchase something and take to somebody's house. But again, it's letting somebody know that you care for them. If you have somebody sick in their home or maybe they've lost a loved one or they have a, a relative that's sick that they're trying to tend to, cooking a meal is one of the last things they may have time to do. They may not be able to afford to take time away from the person that they're trying to tend to. Or maybe they may not have the strength or energy themselves to get up and cook a meal. By us taking a meal to them, it's letting them know that, look, we care about what you're doing. We understand. We want you to spend your time doing what's necessary for yourself or your family. Let us do the meal for you. And this last one I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on. But there is so much that goes on behind the scenes here at Pippin. Things that we may not ever see when we're sitting here on Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday night. 
There's needs that pop up all the time that need to be done. What I would encourage you to do is if you see a need of something, if you see something that's like, you know, I think we ought to be doing something over here, don't wait for somebody to come and ask you to do it. Put forth the initiative. Go talk to the elders. Ask them, hey, what can I do to help take care of this? We all have a responsibility here to make sure that the work is being done. We all have effort that we need to be putting in. I know all this that we've talked about, it sounds like a lot. But the truth of the matter is, there's a lot that needs to be done. I think Pippin is very fortunate that we have so many people here that puts forth the effort that's necessary. And I think God expects each one of us to carry our weight. You know, I think we've all heard the old adage that it seems to be that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. Most of the time, sorry to say it's true. But like I said here at Pippin, those numbers may be skewed a little bit. But either way, we need everybody doing something. It doesn't have to be anything big and elaborate, but we all have the responsibility to put forth some kind of an effort to make sure that the work of this church is being done. So when we go back to the analogy of... Um, comparing the church to a business that's well run. One of the responsibilities of employees of that business is to make sure that you understand what your role is and that you're willing to do things that are asked of you even if it's outside of your job description or your comfort area. Are we doing that? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12. For time's sake, I'm not going to read the entire thing as I'd planned, but let's, let's begin reading in verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, let's begin reading in verse 18. It says, But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the, again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. But no much, no much rather... Those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. No matter what you may feel or think about yourself and your abilities and your talents that you have, the scripture tells us here very plainly in verse 22, it says those members that appear to be weaker, they are necessary. There's no part of your body that you would ever want to lose. I mean, I, I can just imagine losing a, a little toe. I mean, how big is a little toe? I mean, what kind of balance problems would that cause? Every part of your body is necessary. Every part of the body of Christ is necessary. If you are a Christian, you are part of that body of Christ. There is something that is here for you to do. You know, I think what the Bible expects from us to do is, is we have to find our talent. We all have a talent of some kind. If we didn't, we wouldn't be able to go to jobs out in the world. We wouldn't be able to do anything. We all have a talent of some kind. I think the Bible, that Christ expects us to find what that talent is, and we need to utilize it for Christ. Maybe I have a talent for cooking. Cook, then. Maybe I have a talent for fixing things. Well, then go fix things. Maybe it's not necessarily here at the building. Maybe there's members of this congregation that need things fixed at their house, and they just don't know how to do it. Do something to help. Maybe I have a talent for listening to people. Well, go and talk to somebody and just listen. Sometimes we, need just, we just need somebody that we can talk to, vent to a little bit. Somebody that will sit and listen to us. Whatever talent you have, find an area to put that talent to use. And I will preface all this by saying, anything that we are doing, 
we need to make sure it's fully supported by the authorization of Scripture. Too many times we may see a need that may need to be done or we have an end result that we want to get to and we're so focused on accomplishing that end result that we don't pay attention to the path that we're taking to get there. The end does not always justify the means. And so that's why I said earlier, if you see a need, go talk to the elders. Keep them in the loop of what's going on. They have a responsibility here to make sure that the souls of everybody in this building, everybody in this congregation are being taken care of. They need to be aware of what's happening. Go talk to the elders about things if you see a need, but make sure that everything we're doing is fully supported by the authorization of Scripture. You know, a few weeks ago, Brother Randy preached a sermon, and in that sermon he was looking at different individuals in Scripture that their life more or less was summed up by one or two lines. Maybe it was two or three Scriptures. If my life had to be summarized tonight... If everything that I've done in my life, everything I'm striving for had to be summarized in just one or two lines in the Bible, what would it say? Would I be like Amplius that says, my beloved in the Lord? Be like Urbanus that says, our fellow worker in Christ? Would be like Mary that said, she labored much for us? Or Persis that said, labored much in the Lord? So what would my one line be in the Bible? Would it be, it say, Jonathan? He climbed the corporate ladder. Jonathan, he obtained great riches. Jonathan, he sought after a lot of worldly knowledge. Or would it say, Jonathan, a worker for the Lord? What would our one line in the Bible be? And so again, we go back to that initial question of what can I do? What can I do to help in the church? You know, what if everybody in the church was giving the same effort that I gave? Where would this church be today? Where would this congregation be today? Where would it be in 50 years from now? What if everybody here had the exact same desire to see the church succeed that I had? Where would the church be today? It's a question we all need to be asking ourselves. You know, there's two ways to really ask the question, what can I do? It can be in an inquisitive way to where we're actually wanting, okay, I need to do something. I want to do something. What can I do? Or it can be asked rhetorically. What can I do? What in the world am I going to be able to do? How is that question set in our mind? How are we asking that question, what can I do? Are we serious about wanting to get involved and do something? You know, if you're not a Christian, does it really matter? All the great works that we do here on this earth, everything that we're doing, yes, while we're here on earth, it may be helping. But when it comes to our, eternal, our eternity, our eternal souls... It means nothing. You can ask Jenna. I don't tend to sugarcoat many things that I say. Sometimes it causes me problems. But I tend to be very blunt sometimes. So I will say this next thing the best way I know how. If you are not a Christian, and yet you are to the point in your life that you understand what you need to be doing to be a Christian, and you are simply making the decision to say, I'm just not doing it, it doesn't matter what you're doing here on this earth. You are basically telling God, I am satisfied to burn in hell. Amen. I am satisfied to spend my life, my eternity, living in hell. I'm just not going to become a Christian. That's in essence what you're telling God if you are simply not doing what needs to be done and you know what needs to be done. So if you haven't become a member of this body <clears throat> that we've talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
the part that every member has a purpose to it. Why aren't you becoming a member of this body? We're, we're told all the time, and I think all of us knows what needs to be done. But simply, we must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We're told in Luke 13, chapter 3, that we are to repent of our sins. That we are to turn away from this life that we've been living and turn towards Christ. Turn to living the life that we should be. Matthew chapter 10, we're told that we are to confess before men that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We're then to become, we're come in contact with the blood of Christ to wash away our sins through baptism. It's explained many times throughout the Bible, but specifically in Romans chapter 6, goes into great detail about what baptism is and why it is necessary for our salvation. And then we're to keep living this life faithfully. We're to keep doing the things that are necessary. We're to keep putting forth the effort in our lives to make sure that this church can be all that it can be, that it can be what Christ intends for it to be on this earth. You know, you may, may already be a Christian. Maybe you've been living this life, but at some point you've kind of fallen to the side a little bit. We can't sit down. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we have the right to stop and take a break. We are expected to stay on this road to keep persevering through what we're doing no matter what the situation may be. So if you need to become a Christian, we urge you to do that tonight. Before you leave this building tonight, I challenge you to put on Christ in baptism. If you've fallen away and you need to come back, set your life back right with Christ. We can take care of any of these needs tonight. So we ask that you come while we stand and as we sing. Whoa.